0: listening to Vet Candy.
1: What's your mindset when you're about to walk into an abdominal explorer and you have no idea what you're going to find in surgery?
2: This is such a mixed emotion situation to be in because one side of you is like, this is awesome and this might be really helpful and we get to go in and see what the heck's going on and get a better handle and You know, hopefully it's not a bad prognosis, but at least, you know, let's try to find some answers. Like this is a great option in those ways. And so there's like, I don't wanna say I'm enthusiastic, but I'm I'm excited to like, you know, maybe we can really help this kiddo. I mean, those are some scary moments. I might go in and see something that looks really gnarly or or scary, or maybe, you know, beyond my scope of ability.
1: Welcome to the Vet Mysteries podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Doctor DrCourtneyDVM and at Candy. Now, let's get started.
0: We'll be right back with more vet candy. Introducing NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. Every one and done monthly dose protects canine patients against heartworm disease, fleas, ticks, roundworms, and hookworms. All in a delicious beef flavored soft chew. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. To learn more, visit NexGuardPlusClinic.com.
1: Usually, I say that we've got great guests, but today we have truly an illustrious guest. We have only the best guests on this podcast. I'm super excited. I've been looking forward to this all week long. And quite frankly, I know you will be too. Today we are joined on this podcast by veterinarian, media mogul, handsome extraordinaire, Dr. Evan Anton. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Anton.
2: I'm humbled by your intro, man. Thank you so much for having me today.
1: Oh, no, this is going to be amazing. And like I said, I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to discuss a super mysterious case. But before we jump right into that mystery, I would love to find a little bit about background because there's so many people listening right now who are like, you know what? I'm thinking about jumping into a career in veterinary medicine. And sometimes our personal stories can be of guidance. So do me a favor. Just set the scene for us if you can. What was it like where you grew up?
2: I grew up uh, just outside of Kansas City, on the Kansas side. And the first house I grew up in, I was very lucky. We had a creek in the backyard. And the natural world has always fascinated me in in every sense. Like that's that's how I wanted to spend my time as a kid. I wasn't that into video games and whatnot. I just wanted to be in the yard and flip rocks and look for insects and and go to the creek and look for turtles and snakes and crawdads and, and whatever I could find. And then, you know, getting into middle school and high school, I got more wrapped up in, you know, just being with friends and social and playing sports and, and being active and whatnot. And then I remember senior year of high school, I took a zoology course and it just totally reconnected me with my, that fascination and that just that love I have for uh, wildlife and our natural world. And I learned a lot in that course and it just re-sparked that interest. And then the next year I went to college at University of Colorado Boulder. And I started as a business major. And I honestly, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. I always knew animals would be a huge part of my life, whether it was personally and or professionally. And then I, uh, again, took a couple courses for some other requirements. I can't remember exactly for the major. And I took Bio one in evolutionary biology. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love learning about this. It doesn't feel like studying, like the the not fun kind, you know? Like, I love this stuff, it's so interesting. And I really put a lot of thought into it and thought, you know what? you know, this is where I belong professionally to somewhere, somewhere in the sciences and then thought a little more. I love animals so much. I love working with my hands. Like I love the surgery aspect of veterinary medicine and I love just working with animals and I love learning about the biology and the sciences of all that and switched majors. It was like at the end of my freshman year, beginning my sophomore year, And then at that point knew I want to be a vet like this career path makes so much sense for me. I mean, I have other passions and things in life, but this one has just clearly been such a big one throughout the entirety of my life. You know, that's my calling. This is what I meant to do. And this is what I want to do.
1: Well, it's it's very interesting. You and I have had similar upbringings because my parents would advise me if I was ever bored or I was looking for fun to do. They just tell me, just go outside there was no video games there was no nintendo there was no sega there was no, just go outside and when i would go outside that's where i would reignite that magic that i i loved for for animals and, you know i kind of joke around that i was Raised by wolves, you know, so to speak, and <laughs> raccoons and opossums, right? because that's who took me along this journey. So, yeah, it, ma- totally. it makes total sense. So, you're in veterinary medicine. You've kind of encapsulated, you know, two questions in one, which is where you grew up, but then also where you started to activate those juices towards veterinary medicine, where you started to activate that desire, that urge to get into veterinary medicine. The question I have is wh- how did you develop an interest in your particular discipline within veterinary medicine? Which is working with exotic animals?
2: Yeah, I mean, as you know, we chatted a little bit before. I'm not board certified by any means, but I I do have a you know real interest (laughs) in working with exotics and wildlife. When I realized I wanted to be a vet, a big part of that was working with those kinds of animals. Like I've grown up with dogs and cats. I love our companion animals to no end. The human animal bond is so special. But I also love working with the wildlife and and I, I love giving back to the wildlife. You know, they provided me so much love and joy over the years. It's like a way to give back to them. And then working with exotic pets, there's so much misunderstanding with them. And there's so much fascination with all these different species, or at least than I have for them. And uh, I always knew that'd be a big part of it. And so I took every elective I could in vet school. I, I went and traveled and would volunteer at wildlife rescues around the world before, during, and, and after vet school. And, you know, did everything I could to just get, you know, as much experience as possible. And, Even in our fourth year, you know, in vet school, you're on rotations in your fourth year, right? And I think I took our exotics clinics rotation more than probably anybody ever has at CSU. I did it like four times and loved it. And then did some cool externships at the zoo and uh, all exotics private practice. And I just can't get enough, man. I mean, I love those animals. When I was, you know, before vet school, I thought I wanted to have every animal. You know, I wanted to have like a whole rescue kind of thing and have all these exotics. And I've just always been totally obsessed with that. I mean, you can see even the pictures on my wall here. (laughs) <laughs> they all just different wildlife stuff and i just love it
1: there's no doubt in my mind that you do love it i can see your passion you know this is not to cast shade on anybody i don't want to start a controversy but i would love to know where was the most fun exotic locale that you've had a pleasure of working with exotic animals we might start a little bit of a controversy <laughs> here but no seriously what was the most fun wherever you've been
2: when you travel and work with these animals, everywhere you go is going to have a special, unique thing that's incomparable to everywhere else that you go, right? And I'll tell you one that really stuck out for a lot of different reasons. And this was Indonesia. And specifically where I was doing you know, veterinary work and doing some hands-on work with some animals was at the Tassikoki Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. And this is in northern Sulawesi. And Sulawesi is a big island there in Indonesia. This was particularly special for me, someone from North America, going to Southeast Asia. The wildlife is so exotic and so different than what we have in North America. There's just such an abundance of animals. We have nothing like that in North America, whether it's, you know, vivirids, things like, you know, binturongs and genets and civets, Mm -hmm. or it's uh, the bird species they have, the hornbills, or it's the the cobras and the venomous snakes or the tropical frogs or whatever. I mean, everything is just so totally different there. So that's really exciting and exotic to begin with. You know, and I, I went there also to see, you know, the Komodo dragons and Komodo and, And go to Borneo and see the orangutans and all that when I was in Indonesia. I had just graduated three months prior from vet school. So it was back in 2013, right? Back then, Wi-Fi wasn't as readily available. I mean, a lot of these rescues in exotic parts of the world, they're already tough to get a hold of. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of in communication by email, but it it was spotty and it it was tough to really get in touch. So I kind (laughs) of just had to show up at the door and say, hey, I'm a veterinarian. If there's anything I can do to help out, I'd be more than happy to. And I'm honestly just traveling through and wanted to spend a few days in the area. And I'm just trying to get into the, you know, the, the nearby natural national parks and see the wildlife and help out if possible. And it was great because that day they were literally just talking. We actually need a vet really bad right now. Both of our vets that we have come in are both out of the country, and we really need some help because we've got this black crested macaque, which is a highly, critically endangered primate species with at that time, maybe 200 individuals in total in the wild that were just native to that area in northern Sulawesi. One of their monkeys had a, a tooth root abscess, which is not an uncommon diagnosis to have in these primates. And it typically is their, their canine teeth. They've got these big, long canine roots, and they're a little vulnerable to getting tooth root infections there. And so I had to do an extraction. And within a couple hours of meeting them and everything, we were, we were going straight down to darting this guy up and getting them in the little hospital there. And bringing out the dental instrumentation they had available and getting this tooth out of there. And it was, um, it was super special, man, because like I had gone from just graduating vet school and I'd done some traveling and worked with animals, but not as a vet, you know, like I was always a student or pre-vet, you know, I can only do so much comfortably and what I feel it's in the animal's best interest. But by this time I felt comfortable enough to pursue this. And I hadn't done it you know, any dental work in any primate whatsoever, but I felt like this was the right place at the right time. And it was kind of like that full circle where like, a big part of my motivation becoming a vet was getting to work with wildlife. And here I am, I've graduated vet school. I'm in remote Indonesia at this awesome wildlife rescue. And this monkey needs my help. And I showed up today and I get to do it. And it was just like super special at that time. It was like one of the most exciting moments in my young veterinary career to be able to do that and get back to a species where there's, like I said, less than 200 of them in the wild. That one stuck out big time. And I got to work with some other animals they had there. But that first day was just like, oh my gosh, this is happening. Like I put all this work and time in and now I'm actually like giving back to an animal, you know, and doing something real and just loving it.
1: Yeah, it's no doubt. It, at what point did you feel like, okay, this is completely surreal. I can't believe this is actually happening to me. Like when we got that animal darted and we're in there, and mm-hmm. I start pulling out
2: luxators and elevators, I'm like, right. holy shit, <laughs> man. I'm like... <laughs> this is happening, like this right, is happening right. you know, like I, I just graduated. I felt like such a noob and just like barely in practice. I, I'd only been at Conejo where I still practice for like three months. I did like a busy summer working there and then um, made a deal with, uh, have you, you probably met Dr. Todd Hughes at some point? In time of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, Todd. And so he's super cool. We hit it off great. We have a lot of common interests. And so we arranged where I would work for a few months over the busy summer months. And then he's real cool. He let me take off I mean, over two months of travel because I told him I want to do a really big trip when I graduate. So that was in the the fall of that year, basically over like September, October.
1: Absolutely incredible because not only did you encapsulate in an extremely colorful way what you were feeling at the time, I also think you get those same moments multiple times throughout your career, but perhaps in a smaller form, perhaps in a slightly diminutive form. But there is those moments, those surreal moments where you're like, can't believe I get to do this that really special moment that you say to yourself oh thank goodness I chose to be you know a veterinarian man that thanks for bringing us there I definitely think that just for a second I was in Indonesia as you were talking that's awesome man no I had no mosquitoes that were biting me but I could feel (laughs) I could feel like I was in Indonesia
0: we'll be right back with more vet candy Introducing NexGuard Plus, a Foxalaner, moxidectin, and pyrantel chewable tablets. Every one-and-done monthly dose protects canine patients against heartworm disease, fleas, ticks, roundworms, and hookworms, all in a delicious beef-flavored soft chew. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. To learn more, visit NexGuardPlusClinic.com.
1: Speaking of going somewhere else, speaking of going into that moment, we're here to talk about something mysterious, something unique. And so what I'd love to do is if you have had an interesting case or semi-mysterious case, could you do us a favor and let us know the name of that patient and give us a signal?
2: It was like an 11-year-old male neutered boxer mix.
1: Okay, 11-year-old. Male neutered boxer mix. So we're not sure of the name, but there is something unique about this boxer. When this boxer walked in, what did you see and what kind of caught your attention?
2: I mean, the history it come in for was acute onset, lethargy, vomiting, and I don't recall diarrhea, but like lethargy, vomiting, anorexia. Okay, and then so- I saw a patient that was um, on physical exam, like abdominal discomfort, but otherwise, Relatively stable. I mean, that was okay. that was the biggest obvious thing on physical than I recall.
1: So it sounds like some GI signs. And so, right? Uh, did you get a chance to meet the family and how were they feeling at the time? Bringing in their boxer, what kind of feeling did you get from the family?
2: Uh, they were concerned. I mean, okay. they this dog was otherwise really food motivated. And it was one of those patients where you've had these, I'm sure, and they're like, when he's not eating, we're really concerned because he's been a little sick here and there and he's, he's not gonna pass up a meal. But when this guy's turning down his food, we know something's really serious. They didn't take it lightly, basically.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point, particularly because um, histories. Histories are so critical and histories For can you. vary between right. the patient, right? So you can have 10 patients, all with the similar sounding history, but could have a variety of different- And vice things. versa. You can have yeah. 10
2: patients with the same diagnosis. Right. And then the history could sound, you know, it could be, have some real variability to it.
1: Yeah, that's so true, man. I would like to tell families, like, listen, you know your dog the best, right? And so yeah. if you know that your dog is not the type of dog to miss a few meals, then not eating is a big deal. But there are some dogs who, you know, sometimes they'll eat, man, and sometimes they'll just walk totally. away. So not having a meal is not necessarily like a major issue. Right. So they're concerned. They know that he's acting out of character. You get a chance to start examining him and getting chance to get acquainted with him. What are you finding on your physical exam? Anything that popped out to you as interesting? On the physical exam, I mean, the biggest thing
2: was there was some cranial abdominal discomfort Mm -hmm. on, on abdominal palpation. You know, his heart rate might've been a little bit elevated, not crazy, but otherwise the remainder of the exam, I mean, he might've had like a tiny bit of dental disease or something that I don't think was related technically as a finding, but otherwise, I don't recall any other remarkable findings on our physical.
1: Okay. And so he's, is he still Sprite? I mean, does, because boxers, man, when they walk in the room, right, they've got no, that big keeled chest and they're athletic, they're ready to go. You know what a I mean? Quiet, a and little he's quiet. He's a little quiet. Yeah. Okay. I,
2: I should, that, that's a very valid point. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. your typical boxer wiggle right? Butt. Right. Yeah. No, he boxer was wiggle quiet. butt. That's he a was, good point. He was looking and acting a little sick and a little, yeah. he was a little quiet.
1: Yeah. Oh man, that's tough. Okay. So a little bit of abdominal discomfort. What did you decide to do next and, and why?
2: So the next steps was uh, starting with some diagnostics. And so we thought, you know, he's a 10 year old guy. Uh, let's just get some blood work and see because what we know so far, there's, a, you know, there's quite a few things that can cause these clinical symptoms and our physical exam findings. And then we should probably consider some imaging too. And so we, we started with uh,
1: CBC Chem, some blood work and uh, abdominal rads yeah it's so critically important because like you think about all right well he's been vomiting a little bit doc he has a little bit of diarrhea he's uh, not eating what do you think it is it's like you know if i was to show you the list of things that cause vomiting in dogs right or things the list of things that cause not eating in dogs it would be i don't know 50 or 60 things long if not more right so at the end of the day i love that you said all right we've got to dig a little bit down this diagnostic path because we got to find out what this is. So you started with just what I call the hammer and screwdriver of diagnostics, just some blood work, some radiographs. What do you find on the blood work and radiographs?
2: On the radiographs, I don't recall them being super remarkable, to be honest. It was, they were not as helpful as I would have liked them to be. Maybe a little bit of that kind of wispy abdominal effusion that you can sometimes see from some, you know, a little bit of inflammation or whatever it was going on in the cranial abdomen. Blood work, there was like a bit of a neutrophilia, not, not crazy. I think it was like a mild to moderate neutrophilia and otherwise looked pretty good.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point because sometimes you do diagnostics, or you recommend diagnostics, and the family is certainly expecting some kind of answers. And when those diagnostics don't give you answers, it's a little bit of a catch-22. It's a little bittersweet because on one hand, you're not finding anything scary. You're not finding anything dangerous. You're not finding anything bad, but you're still not getting an answer that's really tough. And then neutrophilia, we know that neutrophils are the first responders and certainly can be elevated in stress. So all of this is nonspecific, right? From the vomiting diarrhea, to the mild abdominal pain, to the radiographs and the blood work, everything so far is just so nonspecific and it's not really pointing us into any particular direction. This is definitely mysterious. So what was your next step in like trying to unravel this mystery further?
2: We arranged, I think to do an ultrasound Maybe, I don't think we could do it that day for some reason. And so we were going to do it the next day. But because, the guy, because he was just feeling pretty shitty, we offered if they wanted to hospitalize as opposed to doing some uh, outpatient therapy. I think that day we, they ended up hospitalizing and they felt comfortable with that. And so we arranged for that. And then with him and with what we knew and what we didn't know, it was a kind of a generic abdominal case hospitalization. Like we're going to give him some good fluids. We're going to get him on some anti-nausea medication and we're going to get him on some pain meds and just see like overnight, like how things are looking and everything. So this case was a few years ago. The big reason it stuck out was because of how it turned out in the end.
1: Everything so far that you're saying makes complete sense, because if I have a dog who I suspect has some gastrointestinal disturbance, the reality is. Intestines love fluid, right? If you, you know, aren't feeling great, there's a reason why you're guzzling water. There's a reason why you're drinking a ton of water is because you're going to feel better when you're hydrated. And so that makes complete sense. I mean, I think we did
2: a pancreatitis test after the initial diagnostics, just to like we submitted a spec CPL. So that was going to take a day to get back
1: you know maybe a foreign body in there you didn't see anything like that on the x-ray
2: that's the thing yeah on imaging so we just wanted to you know double up on on ultrasound to see if we saw any masses in the abdomen or if if there are any obstructive signs based on ultrasound compared to x-ray even though the x-ray wasn't showing a lot at that time that can change you know over the course of a few hours their abdomen could look different you know from the beginning of the day to the end of the day you know you never know so yeah, i wouldn't be surprised we might have taken x-rays even the next day too to see where things were progressing but that was okay. kind of the direction we were heading i think you got a feel for it yeah
1: sure sure and then you so you said that you didn't find anything on the ultrasound
2: ultrasound i think we saw like scant free fluid okay i don't even think i i, I don't recall if we tapped it or not i don't think we got a sample though and we might have but courses of where we went kind of changed before we yeah. would have gotten those results anyways basically but yeah an ultrasound Now we saw some fluid around the the mesenteric root and just scant fluid kind of in the abdomen a little bit. It didn't help us a lot more beyond that.
1: Yeah, and that's tough, right? That's really tough because as you go down this diagnostic pathway, trying to unravel this mystery, you're hoping that each diagnostic you do will add another piece to the puzzle. And so far, you're just kind of coming up short and it just engenders like this, a little bit of unknown. You're hurtling towards the unknown and you're just not sure. Do you remember your conversation with the family at this time to say, hey, listen, we've done blood work, we've done x-rays, we've done abdominal ultrasound, we've repeated radiographs on the abdomen and still uh, we're coming up short. Do you remember your conversation with them?
2: Yeah, and it also had to do with how the patient was doing under our care, being hospitalized, being on pain management, being on anti-nausea medication and he wasn't really improving. You know, He was not looking a lot better or seeming to feel a whole lot better. He was kind of declining overall, and again, I don't remember the specific parameters or how, but he was doing poorly, and and we did talk about that. And we're like, you know, we're doing what we can be doing, but honestly, at this stage, you know, we might need to do something more aggressive diagnostically, potentially therapeutically to try to get some more answers or help him out a little bit more. And that's when we kind of started discussing the idea of uh, either scoping or operating, you know, doing an explore.
1: Absolutely. OK, now you're definitely talking my language. All right. Yeah, I know. I put the surgeon. Yeah, no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. no, so you decide, well, we could send a camera down there, right? We could take a look at the stomach or we could take a look at the intestine and do an endoscopy. Or we could just do an abdominal explorer and get a look at the entire abdomen with the naked eyes so to see if right. we can find any problems. Among those two choices, what did the family select? And then what did you guys end up doing? At that stage, I think I recall, we had a scope at that
2: time and it was out of service for some reason. I don't remember, one of our rigid, something was up with it and I honestly don't remember exactly what it was. And then getting him scoped somewhere else also at that time looked like it would be a little more complicated. So that wasn't helpful for the scope side of things. And then because the patient was kind of deteriorating and they were getting really worried about him too, they seemed a bit more on board for pursuing surgery and then getting in there. That's kind of the direction we were going based on circumstantial and, and how the patient was doing.
1: Their family did elect to move towards surgery. Yeah. All right, so are you the one doing this surgery, Dr. Ed? Yes. All right, so you're walking into the OR. You're about to do an abdominal explore and you have no idea what you're about to see when you get in there. And the whole goal is to try to figure out why this guy's not doing well, why is he not responding to any of the therapies that you've been instituting thus far. What's your mindset when you're about to walk into an abdominal explorer and you have no idea what you're gonna find in surgery?
2: This is such a mixed emotion situation to be in. Cause one side of you is like, this is awesome. And this might be really helpful. And we get to go in and see what the heck's going on and get a better handle. You know, hopefully it's not a bad prognosis, but at least, you know, let's try to find some answers. Like this is a great option in those ways. And so there's like, I don't want to say I'm enthusiastic, but I'm I'm excited to like, you know, maybe we can really help this kiddo. I mean, those are some scary moments. I might go in and see something that looks really gnarly or, or scary, or maybe, you know, beyond my scope of ability to pursue surgically. I might see something I've never seen before. I mean, especially doing the exotics kind of work side note, like. God, I mean, there's times where you go and you're like, man, I don't know. And then you get in there and you see something. You're like, it sounds bad, but you're like, dude, I don't know what the, hell, I don't don't know exactly what's going on here. This doesn't make sense with the anatomy I'm used to. It's this mixed emotion of like, awesome. Also, I'm kind of freaking out.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is a mixed emotion. And, you know, your toes are curling, that bead of sweat sort of sp- sp- starts on your forehead or at least on my forehead. Maybe it's just because oh, yeah. I sweat a lot. I'm not sure. But you have this like bead of perspiration You end up starting the surgery and hopefully you have an assistant or maybe you're doing this solo. And yeah, let us know what you start finding.
2: So yeah, we make our initial incision we get in there. And because of the patient's clinical signs, I think I was paying more attention to the GI tract initially. And so I'm just kind of running the gut, starting from as far up as I can on these, you know, the stomach and everything and, and a little, you know, the base of the esophagus and then just doing my full abdominal explore, just running through from stomach all the way to the end of the colon basically, right? Along the GI tract, there was no signs of obstruction, all the guts were pink, everything looked pretty good.
1: Everything looked good, I wanna pause you there just because I think it's so critical, I love the way you contextualized that and articulated that because when you're doing an abdominal explore, there is a systematic approach to it. You don't kind of open the abdomen and then just Root around and see what you can find. You start oral to aboral or from proximal to distal, and you work in a really systematic way, and that helps to avoid missing something that's really important. Or you start to learn that. So I love the way that you describe that because there is a system. Yeah, you, know, you are looking for something. So you look at the intestine; everything looks fairly normal. Pick us up from there. What happens after that?
2: Yeah, I'm moving up, and now I'm looking at the liver, basically and just feeling palpating visualizing all the lobes peeling it back looking down you know the sides of the advent on, on both sides of the outer lobes in between and the gallbladder and all that just trying to get a better hand on what's going on there and that's pretty much negative you know it looks fine normal liver color gallbladder is full of just liquid bile and you know the duct i mean everything looked fine the pancreas took a look at the pancreas and i probably probably made a note of that along the gi track but like it looked like a normal pancreas. It was a color I, I like to see. And it was obviously I'm being extra gentle with it, but it didn't look too concerning. And then I think I made my way to the spleen. I think the spleen was unremarkable too. It seemed like a pretty typical size.
1: All right, Dr. This Andrew, this is, getting, okay. this is getting really interesting. You're going through the activity in a really systematic way. I mean, step by step. <laughs> and you aren't finding anything. Now we just mentioned about that bead of perspiration on the forehead. We yeah. mentioned the toes curling. At, when you're going through this and everything is just normal, 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 are you getting a sinking feeling? What, describe your emotions at the time as you're going through the abdomen and nothing is popping out abnormal. What are you feeling at the time? It's
2: also mixed emotions, right? right because it's right. like, I had to say, but your clinical mind is like crap, you know? Like I want answers and I'm not getting answers. I move from there to the kidneys and down you know, the rest of the urinary tract. And I'm like, we need to dive in a little deeper But man, I wanted answers. But then of course, the other side of me is like, oh good, we're not obstructed. You know, this all looks like healthy tissue, healthy organs, like this is a good thing. That's not a bad thing, right? That's where we're like, okay, I need to look a little deeper. I need to just make sure I'm not missing anything and just get a better handle of what's going on. And so then I start going to uh, looking more along the actual mesentery and and trying to look for lymph nodes and, and whatnot, and as I'm doing that, I'm palpating and in, in, in looking closer at that, and I can't remember if I saw visually first or palpated it, but the root of the mesentery was not normal.
1: Oh, no. The root of the mesentery, again, the mesentery for those who are just listening passively is the, the a curtain, right? It is the essentially what the intestines hang from in the intestine and what they're anchored by in your body. They're, they're anchored by this sort of curtain of tissue called the mesentery. And so you look at the root of that and it does not look normal. What are you looking at and what are you finding?
2: First of all, the color, it looks a little more inflamed. And I say that because it's a little more red than I would like to see. And it uh, might even be slightly thickened, but it was it didn't look like a normal, healthy, happy mesentery.
1: ultimately, at that stage, you're looking at an unhealthy mesentery and you're like, "This looks really red. What did you do from that point?
2: Looked in closer. and then almost kind of like how you do your GI ex- explorer of your intestines. I love how you said curtain. i don't I don't know if I've heard that before, but that's such a good analogy, like how curtains bunch up when you open the curtains rather. And then they're right. all kind of folded on each other, I'm kind of just, you know, looking through all the folds of the mesentery to see if I see anything more specific. And that's where I come across something that looks like it could be the reason why our kiddos in the hospital here.
1: All right, man, so we've arrived at this point. You're about to find that this may be it. What did you find and what did you think when you found
2: it? I found multiple masses at the root of the mesentery. One of them was a little bit larger and more noticeable and even a little bit ulcerated looking. And then there was like two or three other smaller ones that were just looked like round soft tissue masses, basically. One of them I couldn't discern for sure from lymph node, but there was multiple mass looking structures at the root of that mesentery. You know, now we're obviously, you know, looking, looks like we've got probably some kind of neoplasia taking place. I wasn't sure what kind of, tissue process that was exactly, to be more specific, you know, what kind of neoplasia we're looking at?
1: Yeah, most importantly, you're kind of faced with this duality of, 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 of purpose, right? One purpose is to get a diagnosis, is to find out, and then the other duality of purpose is to, how can I help this dog? What can I do for this dog? And so, how did you navigate that? And were you able to do anything therapeutically for an abnormality that, quite frankly, it's just hard to get to and hard to do anything. Were you able to help in any way?
2: That looks pretty tough, man, because the bigger of those masses I was describing, the one that had the ulceration on it, it was like right on one of the bigger vessels from the root of the mesentery. Like surgically, it looked really complicated, especially if, I mean, the idea of getting margins on that thing looked like an impossibility, at least for, for my surgical skill set. And honestly, just anatomically, like it just didn't look like it was an option to get good margins on that whatsoever. It was really associated with a, a major vessel there. So, I mean, I thought at the very least we're in here, let's try to get some tissue from at least a couple of these, you know, to submit for just to submit his biopsies, and maybe we can get some more answers and see where we want to go from there. But we were pretty discouraged because seeing the multiple masses was not a good sign. And this dog, like I said, it had declined from being in the hospital to getting to the operating table. And, um, yeah, we were in a bad spot. I was worried. It was a really bad spot. And I was, you know, the learning of these multiple masses, I was concerned that this was going to be a uh, bad prognosis.
1: You know, it is interesting, you know, when you're faced with that choice and man, I feel for you, I can imagine that feeling of wanting to help in some way. And you say to yourself, I don't know if we can help this dog surgically, but I do think that achieving a diagnosis, getting a piece of that can help us do two things. One is know our enemy, right? Who's the enemy? And then two, where does the enemy live? And I think you did an awesome job of trying to figure out who's the enemy, right? And once you figured that out, then you know that you could really target that enemy and hopefully help this dog. Once you submitted those masses, Dr. Anton, who was the enemy? And how did you find that out? Well, we submitted those to our, our lab, of course, where they did the histopath.
2: And the enemy was the great imitator. Cancer that can look like any kind of cancer and be anywhere in the body pretty much. And it was, uh, was mast cell tumors. Mast cell tumor. Yeah. Unbelievable at the root of the mesentery. That's right. That's the first and last time that I've seen that, or at least that I know of a patient having that.
1: Yeah, that is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, you and I could probably do several podcast episodes on just mast cell tumors alone because they are so (laughs) common. But uh, the reality is they are the most common skin tumor in dogs and boxers are predisposed certainly for mast cell tumor disease and they have a whole spectrum of severity, everything from grade ones, which are benign to grade threes, which are hyper aggressive and require chemotherapy and all the rest. And so finding a mast cell tumor and the root of the mesentery is one of the oddest, most mysterious locations I've ever heard of a mast cell. The only thing that seems to fit and I go, well, that makes sense is the fact that he was a boxer.
2: Yeah. That's where our head was kind of going to honestly, at that time. And you see that about mast cells. I mean, there's such a unique tissue process. There's such a weird neoplasia, because there's been times, I'm sure you've seen this too, where you submit masses and you might have different pathologists look and they're giving you pretty different answers. And they're one of the few where that's the case. You know, there's there's subjectivity even when you have tissue slices where you think this is, should be what it is, and they're giving you different grades and, and telling you different expectations they would have from whatever whatever they're seeing, which is just kind of wild. But
1: it's a frustrating one. It's a very weird and frustrating. Mass. I do want to dial back on something that you you said as an aside, which I can't emphasize how critical it is enough. He called it the great imitator. And I think that anybody who's listening and saying, well, oh, what does Dr. Anton call it the great imitator? I'm happy to talk about it, but because you mentioned that moniker, which I think is so important, talk to me about what you mean when you say the great imitator.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember learning this. I can't remember if it was my neoplasia rotation or my derm rotation in bed school. But especially with like those skin masses too, the mast cell tumors are, they're one that can look like any skin mass. And so when it's, it's, we as vets, when we're saying like, oh, you know, the odds of this being something concerning are are low based on the morphology of the mass and what we're seeing and what it looks like in this and that. There are sometimes mast cell tumors where they can look real benign and they can look like they're not a bit concerned. There's some that can look like other, you know, gnarly cancers, but you wouldn't expect mast cell necessarily. They can just kind of look like anything. They have so many different costumes they wear where they can, they always have a trick up their sleeve. So just, you you can never let them come and surprise you. You always have to be prepared for a mast cell tumor being anywhere and kind of looking like anything on a lot of different tissue levels. But it it was skin, I think, involving skin, especially where I first learned that that moniker, you know.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. So, if you're at home and you see a little skin mass and you're thinking it's nothing, please be cautioned because they can be something sinister, lurking and, and fairly insidious. It's certainly more dangerous than seem evident. What happened to that boxer? Fill us in on that uncertain future for that boxer.
2: Right, and this this is the part where I feel bad because I I, I actually do not remember exactly. But okay, the boxer didn't. It, it was bad shortly after that. That kiddo was humanely euthanized because I can't remember if it even made it. I don't can't remember that boxer made it to, yeah, to you learn know, of his his histopath results.
1: I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think what you're underscoring is that mast cell tumor disease, when it's very aggressive, does not have a very favorable prognosis, even in the face of aggressive chemotherapy. If you're unable to reduce or what we call cytoreductive surgery, if you're unable to take away the tumor, then that tumor burden, even in the face of chemotherapy, can be a really poor prognosis for the boxer. So although we don't remember exactly exactly, I think we what euthanized
2: happened, on the table potentially. Oh, and geez. I think that was because we pretty much had to attribute his clinical symptoms a result of this, based on a bit of you know the other workup we'd done and what we saw and didn't see on our Explorer. And explain to the owners what would be entailed if with trying to make this somehow treatable and because of its location and what would be necessary to make this guy healthy and what he has to go through just to recover from the surgery let alone how much time are we going to buy and how he's doing I feel terrible I can't remember like I said it's a few years ago
1: no I listen, it was definitely
2: I... was not much longer than that it might have been humane euthanasia on the table because it just looked so grave with the location of the masses and seeing multiple and what we assumed and what they would want to put him through in terms of other chemotherapeutic options given what limitations we had with the masses and their location, you know?
1: Yeah, I think there's two critical elements in that discussion piece. And that is, as as a family, when your vet asks you to take your dog to surgery, you need to have that conversation about what you would want to do during the surgery if they discovered something horrible. Then as a veterinarian, as a surgeon, as anybody who does surgery, I think it's important to know, to have a backup plan on what you would do in the event where you discovered something. So going into surgery without having either that discussion or having that plan can leave you in a really tough situation. No, you're so right.
2: I'm glad you brought that up. And I think, yeah, anytime you're going, and a lot of families, when you do those, I think they have in mind, like, this could be bad. Like, we don't know our patient, you know, our pet's not doing well. Now we're going in to try to find answers that we may or may not be able to fix. And we make it clear. We communicate obviously to them. And you're so right. You know, you, c- you can't stress enough how important it is for everybody to be on the same page and understand. Hey, we're going to see what we can do, but there's a totally reasonable chance this isn't. You know, we're not going to like what we find, and it might not be something we can do a whole lot for. Depending yeah. On what we see.
1: Well, Doctor Anton, this was absolutely incredible. Just such a mysterious case, in part because the signs that you initially saw were so nonspecific and arguably fairly innocuous and benign. And what it turned out to be was anything but that. And, um, you know, very unfortunate end for that boxer. But I think one thing we can rest assured is that if you see something, say something, right? If you see something in your boxer, say something to your veterinarian so that it can be investigated. I got to, really thank you for sharing this experience, sharing that knowledge and sharing this case with us because I think we gleaned a lot from it. So I really appreciate you doing this. I do want to ask one thing though. People want to learn more from Dr. Anton. Where can they find you? Uh, you can go to my Instagram, Dr.
2: Evan Anton, D-R period Evan Anton, E-V-A-N-A-N-T-I-N, Facebook.com slash Evan Anton. I have been on my list. I'm going to get my, my TikTok going and I have a TikTok, but I just haven't been posting to it. But TikTok seems like a lot of fun. And I, I really want to start getting content on there too. But those are, those are the easiest places to find and quickest places to find what I'm up to and, and, and whatnot.
0: We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Introducing Nexgard Plus, a fexiliner, moxidectin, and pyrantel chewable tablets. Every one-and-done monthly dose protects canine patients against heartworm disease, fleas, ticks, roundworms, and hookworms. All in a delicious beef-flavored soft chew. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. You to learn more, visit NexgardPlusClinic.com.
1: All right, man. Well, I am gonna put you on the spot in that we've got to do a TikTok video because I am not on TikTok and it does seem like a lot of fun. And I know I have to get t- You would kill it. You got to get on man. TikTok, bro. You would yeah, absolutely man, kill it. I've got to get some content out there. I'm just like, oh, should I get started? So, uh, listen, one of these days, man, when we connect, we'll have to do we'll have to do something fun. together. Absolutely. All right. Well, fantastic. Thanks again, Dr. Anton. And uh, if we do a round two, I hope you'll come back. Yeah, of course. Anytime, man. You let me know. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Evan Anton just detailing a case for us about a mast cell tumor in a boxer on the root of the mesentery, which is, to put it kindly... That's a mysterious place. That is not a place that is readily observable. It's hard to get to. And as you can see, it started off with a semi-bland and innocuous history and then turned into something very pernicious. But he dropped a lot of gems. He dropped a lot of gems, which is that if you on the history, if your dog is not acting like themselves, definitely take them in to see a vet. And for sure, have a plan, have a plan, have a discussion anytime your dog is going into surgery with another surgeon or with another veterinarian. Fantastic information from Dr. Anton, and please stay tuned for the next episode of Vet Mysteries with Dr. Courtney. We're gonna have a lot of fun and talk to more illustrious guests. So please make sure you remember, there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond, and please take care of your pets and each other.
0: It's Bed Candy. Beth Candy. Bed Candy. It's Bed Candy Radio.